0: You have heard it said, but I say to you, look, look, to be honest, this is not the best reading for your first Sunday in a new church, is it, really? It's a tough reading. But that's the lectionary, we've got it. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he say, you have heard it read? Because they all had heard it read. It's the law, it's the prophets. That's what everyone was steeped in in his culture but i say or the text could also be translated and i say which i think is a little bit better because i think it invites jesus to expand on what is being said in the law because matthew's gospel is really keen on portraying jesus as a kind of new moses as a oh, that's better how's that is that good I should start the whole thing again, shouldn't I? Maybe I, now I won't need to yell so much. Thanks, kid. Jesus is being portrayed as the new Moses all the way through Matthew. And Matthew is really keen to demonstrate that Jesus and the Jesus followers are not heretics. They're part of good Judaism. So even though Jesus is very critical of the Pharisees all the way through Matthew, the Pharisees and the scribes, They're attempting all the time to engage with the question of how do you live this stuff? And even though they get a bit carried away and Jesus criticises them for getting down to tithing the amount of herbs they use, which is sort of not being able to see the wood for the trees, they're really attempting to make sense of this law that they've been given so, so long ago. And Jesus is entering what you could describe as the great conversation. How do we make sense of this? You have heard it said, but, or, and. This is the Mishnah that, we, that the Jews are very uh, committed to. It's, the, it's an ongoing commentary which everyone enters, this great conversation. What does it mean here and now? That's the question that Jesus is trying to... Enumerate and to answer. You've heard it said that from those in ancient times that you should not murder, which is pretty much the basis, the kind of the bedrock of any possibility of society or civilization, isn't it? If you don't have that, we've got anarchy. But it works on the assumption that the world is a dark place, that you have to have a prohibition against murder because if you don't, there'll be Anarchy. But I reckon we can only make sense of what Jesus is saying when he says, but or and I say to you. When we work from a different assumption, the assumption that Jesus seems to be working from. Because he, remember, in last week's text, which really would be much better at the beginning of this week's text, but that's the lectionary writers for you. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill, to make them full. And from Jesus' point of view, the world is not a dark place where we must prohibit murder because otherwise we'll have anarchy. The world is a good place. The world is the place that God made it in the great creation story in the first chapter of Genesis, where, Jesus, where God says over and over again, when God makes something, it is good. God is about goodness and Jesus is about living a life that restores the goodness that God has innately built into the world when Jesus says your kingdom come your will be done it's not another sort of restricted version of life, it is the fullness and wholeness of life that he's talking about, may it be here now as it's supposed to be as you created it to be sure it isn't We all know that, but that's what we're living in. We're living in that great possibility. That's why we've got all this hyperbole, and it's pretty strong, isn't it? The lightest things get the heaviest punishment around murder. You call someone a fool and you end up in hell. It's hyperbole. It's pointing out. The logic of the assumption that if we work from always, if we always work from the assumption that the world is a dark place and getting darker, then everything becomes a law, and you end up with ridiculous laws. Jesus is making the the point that this is an absurd proposition to read to to understand the world this way. We best understanding the world as Jesus understands it, as God made it to be as good. Now. know, thanks for the history lesson, but what does that mean for us now? Well, of course, we're living with this all the time. If refugees are mostly bad and are coming here to do damage to the country, then of course the logical proposition is that you lock them up. If the First Nations people in Alice Springs can't handle alcohol, then the only logical thing to do is to prohibit it, and that's all we need to do. We just lock up the alcohol so that we don't have to lock up the people. If we're starting to see inflation take off in Australia, the only logical thing to do is to hike up interest rates. There's only, if everything, if the only tool that you have is a hammer, we know everything looks like a nail. If everything is the assumption that it is bad and getting worse, then we must do these things, and that's all we need to do. If you fail an exam, or you fail a relationship, did you fail, or are you a failure? They're quite different things, aren't they? But if you work on the assumption that, well, everything is bad and getting worse, well, it's obvious that I failed at this. Not because I failed at this, but because I'm a failure. I fail at most things. That is just the nature of what it means to be me. If the world, if all the tools that we have is a hammer, then everything begins to be looking like a nail. And the same thing happens when Jesus goes on to talk about adultery. It's not about sex. It's not about desire. These are things given to us by God. They're part of the created nature of the world. It's about power and control. It always is. Jesus' good Jewish listeners, they would hear this. When Jesus talks about lust, they would have heard the great stories, terrible horror stories from their scriptures and from our scriptures. The rape of Tamar, which you go home and read if you've got the courage. Terrible story of control and power and selfishness. Or the whole story in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel the prophet starts to talk about Israel as an unfaithful person. As someone who's abandoning the truth in order to lust after power and control with Egypt and Syria and Assyria. These stories would have been stuck in people's minds as Jesus started to use the idea of lust. Because Jesus, when he says everyone who looks on a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart, is once you want power and control and it comes from the centre of who you are, your whole being needs to control another person. You've lost it. You're already falling to bits. You, You might as well pull out your eye or chop off your hand. You're already dissipated your sense of who you are and who another person is, because you can't damage another person by wanting to control them without doing great damage to yourself. I mean, if you know anything of the history of slavery in the United States, where it hung on so long, the damage it did to the southern states and to the personality of what it meant to be an American citizen, huge damage, and we read that brilliantly in the Gettysburg Address, if you've never read it, go home and find it on the internet. It's only really short. One of the great speeches of all time. What it would look like to recapture, to recapture the sense of being fully alive and human rather than degrading other people and being degraded yourself. If your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out, tear it out. This is the hyperbole that Jesus uses to point this out. And the same thing with oaths. Something is deeply wrong in a culture where oaths are required in order for things to be believed, for true things to be said. We do it in the church all the time. Sometimes if we don't use the correct pious religious language, we're not seen as real Christians or real uniting church. I don't know if you've ever been confused by whether it's okay to use the word aborigine or aboriginal. And then, since then, we've had First Nations people. Now, all of these are good ways of, of describing the First Nations people of Australia, but we can easily get into a position where we know the correct term at the moment, and if you don't use it, well, you know, we know that you're not really committed to the cause. We have this, this policing of our language all the time. Or we have political doublespeak and weasel words where we know that a politician ought to be telling us a plain, simple truth, and they're working around it. They're using other language in order to try and obfuscate, to try and not say what's true. And we've got, as we've had over the last few years, the whole idea of alternative facts, which is, of course, total nonsense, but an alternative fact Something is deeply wrong when that's the life we need to lead in order to conceal the truth rather than to live the truth. And the truth that Jesus is living is not a focus on what should be avoided, but what can be embraced. Jesus is living from a whole different assumption about the world, assumption about the people before him, the disciples and the crowds. These are the people he's talking to in this moment and, of course, to us as well. The focus is not on what we should make sure we don't do because the world is a dark and dangerous place, and yes, it is. But Jesus works on a different assumption. His whole experience in Matthew's Gospel, which is the Gospel we've been given during the lectionary for this year, so we'll be coming back to these sorts of texts over and over again It's not about what it looks like, it's about what it truly is. And it truly is, according to God, over and over again, the created order is good. It's not what should be avoided, it it is what we should embrace.